time I did that today. <laughs> uh, the word submit in the Greek, as we've talked about, is hupotasso, fun word to say. Uh, but it's a military term. It means to line up under. And everyone familiar with the military understands that in order for an army to be an effective fighting force, there has to be a, what's called a chain of command. So in the army, lieutenants line up under captains, captains line up under majors, majors line up under colonels, colonels line up under generals. And even the generals line up under, in our culture, the commander-in-chief. Well, the biblical idea of, of submission, or what I'm going to call alignment here, since we're lining up under one another, it's important, though, it has its beginning in the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The, the three persons in the Godhead are equal in their attributes, but they're subordinate in their roles. And that's important to know. You have got in the Godhead before creation began, you've got this idea of submission buried in the Trinity. Not buried, you can see it. And so we understand that all three, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that's why we say it that way, are equal in their attributes, but yet even in that equality there is Submission. God sends his son, John 3:16. for God so loved the world that he sent. He sent his son and Jesus being sent by God understands that he's here on earth to do what God wants him to do. John 3 or 6:38. for I have come down from heaven not to do what I want, but to do the will of him who sent me. I'm, I'm lining up underneath what God wants. And I'm here not to do what I would like to do. I'm here to do what God wants me to do. I'm, I'm under his authority. And then Jesus says in John 15 that he's going to then send the Holy Spirit essentially to do the same thing. He says, when the counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. So submission, when we think of the word, a lot of times our, our sort of knee-jerk emotional reaction is as a negative. It's a negative thing. But submission is a, is a good thing. It's a positive thing. It grows out of the Trinity. And it's, it's critical to see any kind of submission. Here we're talking about wives to husbands. But any sort of submission is a good thing and not as a negative thing. And it's critical to see it as coming out of, of this Trinitarian ground that we've talked about. Because if you don't really have that in your mind, then you can hear the word submission. And it can easily sound like superiority. Or it can sound like slavery. In our culture, I think, if you hear submission, depending on which side of the equation you're on, you either think of it as, as well, somebody is superior or somebody is enslaved. It has that sort of connotation. And that's not the way the Bible's talking about submission. That's certainly not the way First Peter is talking about it. And so if you're a man here this morning and you hear these words, wives, submit to your husbands, and you hear them as superiority. You're superior. 
then I would direct your attention to Jesus. And I would direct your attention to him whom his disciples are intended to line up under. His very last act, minus the cross, was to take on a towel and to wash their feet. So that's the kind of superiority, if you're listening, husbands, and you think of it as a superiority, it looks like that's what it looks like. You taking everything away from yourself and saying, I'm here to get up underneath the person that I'm serving. If you're a woman here this morning and you hear the words, wives, submit to your husband, and you think of it as slavery, then I would direct your attention to Jesus as well. Where he says in John 5, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. So for Jesus, submission wasn't slavery. It was it was satisfaction. This is how I find my satisfaction. It's not a duty. It's a desire. It's what I want to do. It's not what I have to do. It's not a slavery. It's something that that God has made me to do. And when I'm doing that, then I then I feel a certain satisfaction. I I feel a certain desire to continue to do the things that God is asking me to do. So we we see this alignment in the Trinity. We see this alignment in the military. And we see that God has ordained a, a certain alignment within marriage. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 11. Now, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. So that's a piece of alignment. The head of the woman is the man. And the head of Christ is God. So you see that alignment here just in this one verse. At the very top is God. And in alignment with him, underneath him, submissive to him is Jesus. And then submissive to Jesus and his authority is the man and submissive to the man is the woman. And so we see that just in this little context of 1 Corinthians 11. Then in Genesis chapter 3 verse 9, we know that this alignment within the marriage is right there at the beginning. Because when after the fall in Genesis chapter 3, the, the man and the woman hide. You remember that? They're trying to hide and cover up from each other. They no longer want each other to see them as they are. They want to pretend. They want to put on something fake and pretend to be something that they're not. And they're also hiding from God. And so God comes back into the garden and he doesn't say, hey, where'd y'all go? Does he? No, he says, Adam, where are you? Why does he say it that way? See, see, Adam, you're the leader. You're the head. You're the one responsible. I'm I'm coming first to to I'm going down the chain of command. And you're the one primary, primarily responsible for your family, not just your family, all of creation. So I'm I'm coming first to you, Adam, before we start a group counseling session, I need to have a little one on one with you. That's what he's saying. So we see that lineup here in the very beginning that Adam is given the main responsibility for what's happening. And so it's important to see that from right at the very beginning. 
So we see that uh, there is submission, there is alignment from the very beginning, both in the Trinity and in marriage. And so this morning, when we take a look at this particular passage, Peter has been talking about submission already, and he's said there's at least three distinct places where you'd have to have a submissive attitude or or there has to be alignment in order for the way I, God, have made the world to operate. And we've looked at two of them already, chapter 2, verse 13. There's what's called an institutional alignment. So God has ordained certain governance and, and we as the people of God, even though we are a, a royal uh, priest, we're a, a chosen people, we can't step somehow, some, somehow step outside of that and say, no, we don't have to obey the government. Peter's saying, no, 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 you're aligned underneath. God has ordained certain governance and you have to align yourself underneath that, even if it's oppressive. And then he says there's a certain alignment now in work. He's going from the bigger to the smaller. Even in terms of your employer, your boss, your leader, there's an alignment. And even if the person is unjust, you have to line yourself up underneath that person. Chapter 2, verse 18. And then he goes on to a marriage alignment here in chapter 3, verse 1. And I think it's uh, maybe some helpful reminders before we get to the text. Number one, everyone has to learn to live in submission. Not just women, married women. Nobody here lives outside of being in submission. And probably in several different ways, in several different roles. So it's not something that just comes down on some unique group or population. Everybody has to learn how to do that. Uh, Number two, when we talk about submission, we're not talking about intelligence or capability. Uh, You might be way more intelligent or way more capable than your spouse or your boss or some of you think you're governing. You might say, I'm way smarter than those people in Washington, D.C. I'm way more capable than those people, my boss. But it's not talking about intelligence or capability. That's not what the Bible's addressing here, because we're we're not we're not um, being submissive because we're less intelligent or less capable, but we're being submissive. And Peter says it for the Lord's sake. That's why you're submissive. You're submissive because that's what God wants you to do. That's how he's done it. So that's the way you approach that. And so in God's economy, his glory, his purposes are most clearly revealed in submission and suffering. God has instituted this in a particular way because the way God operates in his economy, the way he's most clearly seen is through submission and suffering. That's how God's most clearly revealed. And how do we know that's true for sure? Because of the cross. You see God most clearly. He's most well-defined when he's suffering and submitting. And when you're suffering and submitting, as we are as a people, suffering and submitting, that's the time the gospel can have the greatest impact Or shine the greatest light. So that's the way God has operated. And finally, well, maybe two more things. One, 
Peter's definitely not saying that we should be submissive against the word of God. So you have a government, you have a boss, you have a husband, and they ask you to do things that are against the word of God, then you wouldn't do that ever. Certainly, he's not saying you should live wives in an abusive situation. Finally, I think it's helpful to remember that Peter himself was married. You remember he, Jesus came to Peter's house and healed Peter's mother-in-law. And so Peter had a wife. And so, boy, I just would love to have been there the night Peter wrote this down. You know, hey, honey, I'm home for dinner. Hey, guess what I wrote today? Listen to this part of this letter. You know, I'd love to have heard that little conversation at dinner time and how that went. So I think it's helpful to understand Peter here. He's he's not just looking over there and saying this is the way marriages ought to be. He's like, no, no, no I'm married I know what it costs. I know what it means. I I know what that unique relationship is is like. So let's look at the verses, and I want to just take them sort of two at a time. Verses 1 and 2, 3 and 4, and then 5 and 6. So, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if you do not obey the word, even if some do not obey the word of God, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. Then they will see your respectful when they when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Several things to notice here. One, recognize Peter is acknowledging he's a pastor. He's acknowledging he he's standing up in front of his congregation. And he sees what I see. He sees what every pastor of a church sees. He sees those Women who are married, whose wives, whose husbands don't share their faith, don't share their beliefs. And just right, right out of the gate, I want you to hear and sense the compassionate nature of Peter saying, Hey, I, I understand that you're out there. I know that what I'm going to ask here is, is it's, a, it's a big lift. It's going to be very difficult for, for all of you, but it's going to be uniquely difficult for those who are married to men who don't share their same faith. See, see, it may be challenging for uh, a church to live underneath a, a government that's oppressive. It may be challenging for you to live underneath a boss that's oppressive or unjust, but you don't have to sleep with any of those people. It's very different once you close the door of your house and you have to live in that environment and Peter seems to understand here, hey, I understand when you, when you have to get into bed with somebody, when you have to live your life with somebody, and they don't share your same belief structure, that's a very difficult thing. I want you to hear Peter say that. He understands that difficulty. I, I know some of your stories, and I want to be an encouragement to you. I want Peter to be an encouragement to you this morning. I also want just his tenderness, his understanding, his recognition that there are women out there in very difficult circumstances to be a big warning for those who are younger and unmarried. The most painful conversations pastors, some of the most painful conversations pastors have 
are with women who come and talk about how difficult it is to live in a house with somebody who doesn't share their own beliefs. And they have to now find a way for 20, 40, or 60 years to navigate a way to live underneath that person who doesn't share their same beliefs. That's a difficulty. Very big difficulty. So if you're here and you're not yet married, hear the tenderness and avoid the trap of feeling like, oh gosh, maybe, maybe I'm getting too old or maybe I'm not going to find the right person and I'll just you know, get this nominal or sort of non-Christian person. It's a long, long haul to line up underneath somebody that doesn't share your same beliefs. So let that be a warning. Second thing to notice is that Peter doesn't want us to lose hope. He knows. He knows. He also can look out in his congregation and know that some of these women have lived these godly lives right up alongside of these men. And and some of them have been won over. Augustine, the the great um, disciple of Christ in the third, fourth century, he grew up where he had a very faithful mother and a very unfaithful father. And he saw the tension. And as he got older, he wrote a book called Confessions. And in it, he writes this about his family or specifically about his mother. She served her husband as her master and did all she could to win him for you. Speaking to him of you by her conduct, by which you made her beautiful. Finally, When her husband was at the end of his earthly span, she gained him for you. So Peter is trying to say, I understand the the tension. I understand the difficulty of you having to live in that situation. But I don't want you to lose heart. I want you to hear that your your quiet, submissive uh, spirit, your respectful conduct, you're you're coming alongside, you're you're trying to get up underneath this person that, that doesn't share your same beliefs. That person is noticing those things. And even though it may not seem like it now, There there will be many, many men, some of you all are here even this morning, who when you stand before the Lord, you, you will first acknowledge, as everyone will stand before the Lord, first acknowledge who saves you. And you're going to say, that was Jesus. But everybody's going to point to somebody else that God used. And many men will stand before God. And the first person they'll find after Jesus is a wife. And they'll say, it was because you were long-suffering. You, you were respectful. You lined up underneath me in ways that I couldn't even imagine. And, and you brought me. You won me to him. So don't lose heart. The, the third thing I would say about these verses is that inside every marriage there will be some powerfully difficult moments. I didn't know how else to phrase that. Powerfully difficult. Every marriage. Every marriage is going to have inside of it some very, very difficult moments. Wives, you know, I'm sure this isn't news to you. You married a sinner. (laughs) You married a great 
sinner. You, you know that. It's not like, whoa, I learned today, Paul Phillips, sinner. No, I mean, you knew that. And there, there will be times in your marriage when you have done the right thing. You've done a good thing and you will have to suffer for it. I want to say I'm sorry that that's going to happen, but that is going to happen. Even if you've mar- you're married to a very godly man, you're going to have done the right thing, wives, and you will have to suffer for it. I'm not saying it's right. I'm saying it's going to happen. And it's just at these moments, these difficult moments, just at, just at that point in, the, in this powerfully difficult moment where, where grace can have its biggest impact. Particularly in the sight of God. Look at verse 4. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. See, we're living, we're living ultimately for God. And he's seen that. And he's seen at that very difficult moment when you're being oppressed by a government, when you're being treated unjustly by a boss, when you're, you're having to submit in a difficult situation. He sees that and he thinks that's very Precious. Wives, let's just think for a moment about your last conflict with your husband. Now, some of you are going, uh, that was about 20 minutes ago when we got out of the car. We were just finishing a conflict. But, but think, think, maybe not too hard about this. <laughs> uh, but think back when, when you were right and your husband was wrong. Not that, now, this isn't every conversation you've had, but I'm just thinking back where, where you were right. And it's usually easy pe- for people to recall every detail of this conversation. But, but think about when you were treated unfairly. And here's my question for you. At, at that moment, how did you respond? You were right, and in the end, you were proven right. But at that moment, you were being treated unjustly. And at that moment, how, is, how did you respond? When, when the mischaracterizations began to come out of your husband, when, when the name-calling began to come forth, at, at that moment, how did you respond? Did you say, okay, hey, two can play that game. Game on, buddy. In fact, Homer Simpson, I've been collecting some things that I'd like to tell you too. I mean, was that your attitude? Was that, was that your projection back when you were reviled? Did you revile in return? See, it is going to happen, and I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm just saying it is going to happen, and at that moment, God is looking in. If you have kids, they're looking in. And how are you responding at that particularly powerful, difficult, painful moment? If your husband is not perfectly obeying the word of God, it's not a license and it's not an excuse for you to begin not obeying the word of God.
Wives, at, at this point in that conversation, you, you have to be completely entrusting yourself to this right here. This is what gets you through. When you're being reviled and you don't revile in return, when you're being mischaracterized and you don't mischaracterize in return, I think the only way to really stay in that moment and not do things that the world would want you to do is to understand that Jesus stood in that moment for you. When you were reviling him, he did not revile in return. When you were wounding him, he did not wound in return. And if you have that embedded, if you, if you say, I'm, I'm completely entrusting myself to the Lord at this moment, I'm not saying you never have a conversation. I'm not saying you can't have, hey, I think you may be seeing things different. I'm not saying you just shut down. I'm just saying you've got to have your identity completely embedded at Christ all, at all times, but particularly at that difficult moment. Verse uh, 3 and 4. Do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair, the wearing of gold. Some of you are going, oh gosh, put on these gold earrings this morning. What a terrible time to put these on. Or the putting on of clothing. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And then the first time I think when I was reading through this, and you may have had the same feeling in, in, in the overall context, is seems to me like this, this, this abrupt left turn. I mean, we're talking about submission in general in the whole context here. And then we're specifically talking about submission in terms of the wives and the husband and that alignment. And then suddenly, Peter seems to take this, you know, sharp left turn and we've, we've moved away from submission. And we're talking about salons and shopping. And you just think, what? How did I? I mean, I must have missed some transition statement here where Peter has just moved on to what people uh, how they braid their hair and what kind of things they put on their ears. And so I think what's helpful here is to see that there's a much larger context for Peter's comments. And if you look back with me in chapter 2, verse 11, notice what this larger context of these um, alignment Peter's really talking about. He says this in chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners or foreigners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. In other words, there are certain ways the world operates. It has a certain appeal to your flesh. And now, because you're a chosen race, you're, you've stepped away from that influence and you've stepped into a, a different stream as it would be. And now you're living in a different way from the world because it's going to be like you're a foreigner. Look strange when you when you live this way. And as you follow Christ, we understand that that we don't operate now according to the world's way. We don't we don't think of power in the same way. What, what's our what's our picture of power as Christians? It's the cross. This is where power is. It's not dominating over somebody. It's getting underneath somebody. And so we have a different view of what's happening in the world where foreigners. And so for men, according to the world, 
One way to display power is physical strength. It's a very common way for men to gain power, and especially over women. If I want to use the world's way against my wife, then I get bigger and stronger and louder, and I force something. And Peter's going to say, hey, you don't live that way anymore. That's the way the world lives. You're, you're operating in a different sort of power. You're operating in a different sort of strength. And it's not about physical strength anymore. You're not living that way, man. And we'll get to that next week. And for women, according to the world, one way women gain power over men, and I might say other women, but I'm not an expert here, is not through physical strength, but through physical beauty. In, in many cultures, including our own, female sexuality is, can be used like a weapon. And it can be a mighty temptation, as it might be for a man to use his physical strength. It could be a mighty temptation for, for women to gain power, to put hope in physical beauty and what it can bring you instead of to put your hope in God and what He can bring you. And I think most women understand that if you're not getting what you want, there is a worldly way of using your sexuality to get what you want. And so Peter, I think when he starts talking about what seems like a left-hand turn, it's really not a left-hand turn. He's saying, no, there's a way in which the world would say, women, inside of marriage, here's a weapon you have. You can use your sexuality against your husband to manipulate him and get him to do the things that you want. Men, there's a way in which you can operate. You can exert your force on your wives and you can make them do the things that you... You see, there's a worldly way. And Peter say, hey, we're not operating in that way anymore. We're operating in a completely different stream. And so he comes to the women here particularly and he says, hey, I know there's this powerful stream of... Of beauty, of outward adornment. And, and you might be, have been used to using that in a way that's not healthy or helpful. And now he's trying to say, no, there's a different way. And that is you want to be preoccupied instead of the, the outward adornment. You want to be preoccupied with an imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Which in God's sight is very precious. In our world, we call gold a precious, what, metal. In our economy, we look at gold and we say, it's precious. It's not like iron ore. It's not like rock. No, no, when you see a piece of gold, it's a precious metal. Do you know what gold is used for in heaven? Pavement. You see, what we call precious down here is not what God calls precious up there. 
It's completely opposite. And so we, Peter's saying, hey, there's something completely opposite about what God thinks is precious. He's looking down. He's looking at his daughter. And he's saying, what's precious, what's valuable to me as your creator, as your father, as your husband that's going to come and grab you and be your bride one day. What's precious is this gentle, quiet spirit. And when we hear that, I think that from listening to women that I live with, the gentle, quiet spirit can sometimes feel like some sort of sappy, mousy, feminine characteristic. You hear that and immediately you've got an apron on and you're serving pieces of pie and you don't say anything. I mean, and I don't know what it is in your mind that it comes. But, it, but when you hear it, it's just this, I, I'm mousy, I'm small, I, I, I'm insignificant. Nobody knows I came into the room. I, I mean, I sneak in and out and that's sort of, the, that's not what Peter's talking about here. That's, that's a really bad picture of what. Peter's talking about that. The, the gentle and quiet spirit is not distinctly a feminine characteristic. It's distinctly a Christ-like characteristic. See, you're, you're exhibiting a Christ-like characteristic to your family. You're not exhibiting some unique Christ, Christian female characteristic. And we know that because Jesus himself says, Matthew 11... Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, and you will learn from me, for I am I'm gentle. I'm humble. See, everyone come and take, take this. Take this gentle, humble spirit, and you will find rest. Paul says that one of the fruits of the Spirit... Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. And so when you exhibit this, you're exhibiting something that's a Christ-like characteristic. And so in your picture, I would hope that you would see yourself in terms of a gentle, quiet spirit, not, not with an apron and nobody knows you and you're just serving Things. No, I would want you to think more like the picture that we had up in the very beginning. This strong lighthouse that stands with the waves that are beating against it. And you're, you, wives, you're standing in the middle of your family. And I don't care what your family's like. There's going to be some moments in your family that will be absolute chaos. And you... You can stand there with this gentle, quiet spirit like a lighthouse in the midst of total confusion and chaos. And you can stand there and say, I am trusting in God Almighty in this moment. And I can show you, I can shine a light on Christ. By the way, I take my confident stand at that point. Not that I shrivel up. Not that I'm not seeing. That's not it. It's your lighthouse saying there's a way to live. And I can show you that by the way I'm living right now. That's the picture that Peter has in mind. When we talk about a gentle and quiet spirit. It's a Christ-like characteristic I stopped here at this point and thought it might be helpful to say a few things. Uh, number one, I'm 
I cannot in any way appreciate the hurricane force winds of our culture against women. I, I really feel sorry for my daughter. I was watching this video about a guy, a professor, I guess he was a professor, and he was talking about pornography and the effect of pornography on the uh, brain. So kind of like if you were doing a study for people addicted to cocaine, let's say, and you would say, well, this is the brain on cocaine, this is the brain not on cocaine, and you could see differences. And he was saying that in his study of pornography, he wanted to do the same thing with college men, college males. Here's the brain who's seen pornography. Here's the brain who hasn't. And you can see how it's affecting your brain. And he said, but the problem is we couldn't find a control group. And I have a 19-year-old who walks around on campus at UNCW. I I know that there's hurricane force winds, but I I can't appreciate the difficulty. The comparisons that you have to have every time you walk into the grocery store and you stand in line. I don't know what that feels like, but I'm just sure it's very, very difficult. Second thing, men... What you adore in your wife, what you adore in other women, will be adorned by your daughter. And admired by your sons. What, whatever your comments are about the lingerie football or commercial, beer commercial or your kids hear that. I see your change of direction and what you look at. They pay attention. And what you adore, your daughter will, will adorn. She wants, she hungers for the attention of her dad. And when she gets older, she's going to transfer that to somebody else. And what you've adored, they're going to adorn. And what you've adored, your son is going to admire. And so, men, your, your comments, your influence in shaping the minds of your children is unmatched, unmatched even by your wife. And that influence begins at birth. It's, it's, it's nearly too late if you start when they're 14. Third thing I wanted to say before I get to the last passage here is on occasion you could run into someone who reads this passage, these two verses, three and four, and wrongfully concludes that women shouldn't braid their hair or wear jewelry. I've run into those people. If you stay around long enough, you'll run into them. And they'll just say, well, look, this is, you know, let's just look at this passage. Uh, seems to me, he says, it's pretty clear. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of jewelry. A lot of times, I I hate to say, when I get into conversations with people like that, I feel like they're looking down at me. I don't know if they are, but it feels a lot like that. 
And you could go to other passages and texts to refute that, but how could you just refute it by just looking at this text? Well, Peter also says, or the putting on of clothing. And so I will resist making any comments here. That would only cause trouble. But clearly he's not talking about putting on nothing of these things. What, what he's talking about is that doesn't need to be your preoccupation. If that becomes your preoccupation, whether it's your clothing or your earrings or your hair, then you're in trouble. He's not trying to, to take it, and, and this can happen very quickly in the Christian community. Oh, you just take it and you run it and you stretch it out over something it doesn't actually mean. And we want to be careful that we don't do that. Finally, the first last verses, Sarah Sarah is promoted as an example, and it could be that you could just say, well, I'm Sarah married to Father Abraham who had many sons, and I mean, she must have had it easy. I mean, she's married to like the most spiritual guy in the Bible, and so who, who wouldn't want to be Sarah? But, you know, if you read about Abraham, you wouldn't want to be Sarah. First of all, he got the call, if you remember, to leave everything he knew. Which also meant she had to leave what? Everything she knew. Family, friends, country, culture, everything. And she, she said, well, Abraham, where, where are we going? You know, I can't. I don't know. I don't know. Some land he's going to show me when we get there, but I can't tell you. I mean, that's tough. And then on the way, twice, Abraham looks at Sarah and looks at other people and say, you know, we're not married. She's my sister. Two times that put her in physical jeopardy. I mean, I wonder what that conversation was like after they got back together. But but Peter is saying, even though that happened, Sarah was able to line herself up underneath this man, even when he has, didn't have the best behavior. So she's a worthy model. And so, wives, your children live with your husband as well as you do, their dad. And they know firsthand that he's imperfect because they see it, they experience it. And my question to you as the wife is that at the point of his imperfection, what do they see from you to him? See, they know he's imperfect because they feel it, they see it. And then when he's imperfect, you know they're looking at you and saying, okay, now how is she going to react to this? Do you work to undermine his authority? Or do you, get, do you try to stay underneath? Do you try to stay in line? See, do you, do you understand how critical that is, wives? You're displaying something for your children that they must learn over and over and over again. Because they're going to live underneath the government, they're going to live underneath the boss, and they may live in a family that has that. And they need you to act in the right way at that very moment and not try to undermine authority. And the other reason that's so critical is because you are going to ask your children to do what? To line up under you. And are you always perfect? Uh, no. And do you want them to undermine your authority when you're not perfect? No. 
you want them to line up underneath you. So it's so critical at that moment that you present a great example for your child. In, in conclusion, I would just tell you one story. And I've said this probably in two, different, two or three different occasions. You may have heard of it, or heard me say it. But this is a great picture of how you have to have an alignment. It's kind of a funny picture to end with on a serious topic. But Nancy and I and Zachary and Morgan, we went on a vacation, and we decided we wanted to take a raft down the Natahala River, which is in the western part of North Carolina. And because the Natahala doesn't have a lot of white water, if you're dumb, you don't need a guide. And I'm dumb, so I decided our family didn't need a guide. It's not that really, it's really not that scary. You stick your paddle in the back right, you steer, move, miss the rocks, miss the overhanging trees. So here we are, the four of us, we get in our little raft, we're, we're going down the Natahala, we're having this big time, right? And there are rocks, and there are some overhanging trees, and there are some forks that you have to decide you want to go right and left. And, and sort of early on, I was like, okay, Nancy and, and uh, Zachary, you're up here, and Morgan, I can't remember, but Nancy was up front with the kid, and I was back front, and I said, I'm going to steer. I'm going to stick my big paddle back here. I'm going to be the rudder, and all you all have to do is paddle. That's it, just paddle. Well, I started steering. And noticing that the back end was going one way and the front end was going a different way. And I thought, well, you know, I'm, I'm trying to steer away from something. And because we've got two people steering. And so I realized Nancy's not paddling anymore. She just has her paddle stuck in the water continuously. And she can see the rock or the tree before I can see the rock and the tree. And she's realizing, hey, I'd like to miss the rock and the tree since I'm up front. And I'm not sure the captain back here sees it like I do. So I would like to steer us away. And now we've got two steers. And what did we do? We hit every rock and tree. So we had to pull over to the side of the Natahala River and we have a little family conversation. About in this boat, we can only have one captain. And it came out something like that, I'm sure. Very pleasant. And uh, very memorable for our children. <laughs> and But, you know, that's, that's the way your life is, isn't it? And, you know, when she stopped uh, steering, I still ran us into rocks and trees, unfortunately. But she had to say, you know what, I'm going to let him be the captain. And yes, at the end, there's this giant boulder that I managed to, you know, navigate around successfully. And we lived, you know, to cheer about it. But, but there are difficult times, are there not wise, where you would like to steer? And you just can't steer. Now, if you're a good husband, we can talk about this next week. There are times that you say to your wife, hey, you're a better captain in this area. So I'm going to paddle, you steer. Be foolish for me to steer in every situation. She steers a lot of our life together, but at the same time, I'm not steering. And God has set it up that I would be the person when I stand in heaven that he's going to say, Paul, let's first talk about your leadership of your family. Before we have a group session, we're going to have a little individual session. 
So men will talk about you next week, but women, the first part is, are you lining up underneath this person? Are you supporting? Are you getting up underneath? Even when it's difficult, you can do it because of the cross. Let's pray together.